Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Kohler. They design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Hey, Proof listeners. I love kitchen gadgets that look cool and are a huge time saver. That's why the Sengoku Heatmate Graphite Grill and Toaster Oven is the perfect solution. This powerhouse packs in a ton of great features. The toaster comes with a handy grill rack, griddle pan, flat pan, and toasting net accessories. No need for oven mitts either, because the rack slides out when you open the door. You can cook, among many things, up to four slices of bread or one nine-inch pizza. And it'll cook them quickly with Sengoku's revolutionary graphite heating technology, which requires no preheating. Literally, it heats up in one second. No joke. The sleek retro design of the Sengoku Heatmate graphite grill and toaster oven is as easy on the eyes as it is easy to use. Check it out for yourself. Proof listeners can save 10% and get free shipping by using the code ATK10 at checkout. Just go to SengokuLA.com. That's S-E-N-G-O-K-U-L-A.com to order yours today. I am not a pet owner. I take it back. I've got a six-year-old boy. I guess he's kind of a wild animal himself. Once in fifth grade, though, I did own a goldfish. Now, this lasted all of two days. I thought I was being generous when I fed the goldfish more food than I was supposed to. A couple or five extra sprinkles of fish food, that's just me being nice, right? Apparently, you should not do that. This idea of feeding your pets is fascinating to me. I have friends who feed their dog from the same bag of dry mix day after day. I also know people who go to Whole Foods and buy fresh Atlantic salmon and prepare gourmet meals for their dogs. What's true is that within my circle of friends, their relationship with their pets is not owner and animal. More than ever, pets feel like family. And in the same way you wouldn't make your six-year-old boy eat junky snacks day after day after day, we're a lot more evolved about what we feed our animal friends. I mean, these days, there are meal kits and sit-down restaurants for pets. From $15 doggy treats to a, Jessica, you're used to this stuff, a tasting <laughs> menu. 75 bucks. The restaurant is called Dog. Is that like kind of like Vogue? Like Vogue. Yes. Oh, look at Oh, those Vogue. are nice looking. <laughs> See this? Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, reporter Varud Gupta asks a simple question. Should I cook for my dog? I'm Kevin Pang. Stick around. Ever get a new kitchen gadget for a tricky recipe and think, um, this is useful in theory, but none of these buttons make sense? Am I going to be able to make this from scratch? Let the Jewel Oven's autopilot feature go from proofing to baking and then baking to broiling, all with a single press of a button. The Jewel Oven is designed with 13 features from air frying to dehydrating. And the Jewel app step-by-step recipe guides, which include recipes from ATK, make it easier to tackle tricky dishes the first time you make them. So aim high and make that goat cheese and herb stuffed chicken with confidence. 
Learn more about the Jewel Oven at Breville.com. That's B-R-E-V-I-L-L-E.com. Hey folks, you already know that at Proof, we love stories that change the way we think about food. And guess what? The companies that support our show are no different. Let's take a journey to Santa Isabel, Puerto Rico to meet Vinny Marti, a mango farmer. Puerto Rico, it's uh, in shape. It's like a rectangle. Uh, and we have a big mountain range in the middle. When you come to the southern part of the island, you arrive into a more arid, tropical part of it. This is perfect for mango growing. Despite living through devastating storms in 2017, Vinny and his team are rebuilding and they're producing some incredibly flavorful mangoes and getting them to the rest of the world. You know, after all the hard work, it's been a whole year on the farm. Happiest time is when we close those doors on the container and the container leaves for the port. Stay tuned as we tell you more stories about mango farmers and chefs who use mangoes in amazing, delicious ways. Learn more at mango.org. I'm Jacob Goldstein, host of the podcast, What's Your Problem? And over the next few weeks, I'll be talking to the people who are shaping the future of food. A Stanford scientist raised billions of dollars to make meat without animals. The mission of the company is to completely replace animals as a food technology. A kid who grew up at his uncle's pizza shop is helping family restaurants survive in the 21st century. The bottleneck isn't the pizza oven, it's the telephone. It's the telephone. And a guy who helped create the iPhone is trying to eliminate food waste by reinventing the trash can. First and foremost, it has to not smell. And that's a crazy thing to say. You can listen to What's Your Problem wherever. Oh, come on, Jacob. You wouldn't pay an extra dollar for a Stegosaurus burger? I'd pay an extra dollar. (laughs) Does it come with fries? Sure, I'll throw in the fries for free. Author Varud Gupta brings us today's story. Oh, and a quick note to listeners, please, please, please consult your vet before you make any decisions about your pet's diet. I never really expected to find myself in this position, but this past year I've become one of those slightly eccentric doggy daddies. Almost a year ago, my girlfriend and I adopted Luna. She's a little Jack Russell Terrier mutt with white fur and brown spots. We named her Luna after Luna Lovegood from Harry Potter because she's elaborately goofy, but also adorable and loving. Becoming a doggy daddy has been rewarding to say the least, but there's a whole host of responsibilities that I feel like no one ever prepared me for. There's getting in at least three walks a day to make sure she poops and pees. There are vet visits, vaccinations, and figuring out doggy insurance. There's finding toys for her to play with, which, somewhere along the way, we found ourselves subscribed to a monthly dog toy box at a cost we never budgeted for. Us parents are more excited about unpacking them than Looney is, whose preferred pastimes include a chew bone and naps. We're always looking out for other dogs for playdates. We now have a fixed time on the calendar to take her to the dog park every night. Her social calendar is more robust than mine. And then... There's the foremost of all the anxiety-inducing and perplexing decisions to make. What in the world do I feed Luna? There's kibble or wet food, frozen raw or cooked, 
But I think there's another option that's been staring at me for a while now. Cooking for her. It's easy to see that Luna has become almost like a child in our apartment. I even introduced Luna to my mother as her granddaughter. And let me tell you, being of Indian heritage, sharing with my mother the shocking news that I don't wish to have kids was actually easier than trying to decipher the many, many options when it comes to dog food. So if Luna is a part of the family, and if I truly want the best for her well-being, should I be cooking for Luni, feeding her the way I do for myself? I began the research around cooked food as I would for most important decisions in my life. A Google search. Skipping through the first few links, all of which are ads for food companies, I find an article by the American Kennel Club that seems promising. But when I reach the end, I notice that the piece is sponsored by Ali, which seems like a new food company that ships freshly cooked meals. So while the content might be helpful, the advertising leaves me questioning all the newfound wisdom. By the time I finish my research and flip onto Instagram for a break, I find my feed overwhelmed by all these dog food ads. Ollie, Nom Nom, Maeve, Farmer's Dog, and this one from Pure Pet. Dog owners treat their dogs like their kids, so why are you feeding them highly processed brown biscuits? Choose a diet that your dog deserves. Go pure! Even though Luna eats kibble, she actually eats anything. I can't help but allow a certain fear to settle in. Have I been a bad pet parent? Am I doing my best for this new life I've brought home? It's a beautiful weekend in New York, and I'm headed out to the pet park with Luna. We're going to celebrate the first birthday of Milo. Milo is a brown golden doodle, and the owner is throwing a quote-unquote Mexican-themed party. Now, I'm not sure what is really Mexican about it, but the theme includes a strict dress code of bandanas around each dog's neck, a pitcher of sangria for the humans, and then these tiny little cups filled with whipped cream, a sort of take on the Starbucks puppuccino. No one can best help illuminate the enjoyment doggies get from this treat than this TikTok by GramGram88. He's a Starbucks employee feeding puppuccinos to dogs in a drive-thru. Okay, here you go, little buddy. Oh, you're such a sweet angel face. Hello, you sweet angel face. At the park birthday party, Luna spends most of her time moving from cup to cup in search of leftovers. And it makes me wonder whether other owners worry the way I do about what to feed their dogs. There's Alex, parent of Luna's BFF Mika, who is a Shiba Inu. Mika is mainly served kibble with a salmon oil vitamin syrup topping. On special days, we'll give her chicken and rice, or just when we have extra chicken and rice, we'll do that. That's probably her favorite. Or sometimes she even eats, like, red meat, like um, steak or stuff. Then there's Amy, doggy mommy to the energetic Lani. Lani is a white poodle who is fed a range of proteins. Some are slow-cooked, and some are raw. Usually I give her lamb or like um, certain chicken organs, like the heart, the lungs, or so on. And um, also sometimes a little bit of chicken breast. She likes turkey. For a bit of context, this park is in Upper Manhattan, and the owners here range from millennials to the generation before. I was kind of expecting most to respond that they also fed kibble 
or the occasional one-pot meal for their dog. I didn't expect such a variety of combinations. There's one owner who gives her dog goat milk. Another who sources quality beef from Whole Foods to mix with quinoa and blueberries. Arlene, parent of Ryder and Bambina, both shitsus, get a ton of options throughout the day. Their diet starts with kibble, mixed with some blueberries or strawberries, followed by a treat. I cook for them every day, so I probably will make them chicken, or maybe lamb, or maybe ground beef. It depends. I change it up for them. Uh, in the middle of the day, I give them another treat. It could be a little lamb treat, something small. And then I take them to the park, and they run, and they have a lot of energy. And then at night, I give them their dry kibble so they can go to sleep. Listening to all this, I find myself wanting to cover Luna's ears and hope that the other dogs at the park don't sit around barking about what they've been eating. I'm starting to feel real guilty about her kibble diet. We feed Luna a carrot here and there and then sometimes leftover meat. But to be honest, those treats are definitely more of a rarity than the norm. While some of these owners have settled on their doggy diets, the road to the perfect routine is filled with plenty of ups and downs. Which brings me to Flavia Viegas, owner of Bowie. Like David Bowie. Her troubles are actually ongoing. Right now, she's decided upon a mix of raw lamb and kibble because she's read that raw food is supposed to be healthier for dogs. But she tells me about all the testing she's been through for Bowie. We started cooking for him. So at the beginning, we gave him ground turkey or ground beef with um, sweet potato, peas, spinach, and carrots. We would mix it up sometimes with cranberries. Then we read that tuna was good, so we would add tuna, but then he wouldn't like the smell of tuna. When Flavia started cooking, it was in batches to cover two-week cycles. But when Bowie was being a real picky eater, she shifted to cooking daily. But when she visited the vet, she was told that she should stop cooking because it wasn't healthy for Bowie. Flavia disagreed with the vet. That itself caught my attention, and we'll come back to it in a bit. But after the disagreement, she continued to experiment. And a small warning, our discussion starts to get a little intimate regarding Bowie's bowel movements. I think we changed it to only raw, but if we were giving only raw, he didn't have enough fiber, so he was constipated. And a constipated dog is no joke for us pet parents. When he's constipated, you just stay home because you need to figure it out what to give him so he can go to the restroom. (laughs) Flavia's troubles really amplify the emotions that are tied up when I think about how to change Luna's diet. There's just so much information out there, and unfortunately, many of us owners are being guided by this fear or guilt. For example, even deciding which chicken to buy at a grocery store can become an entire ordeal. One was $3, and it was a white, super thin chicken. And the other one was like a $10 organic chicken. So I was like, do I spend $10 on my dog? Do I spend $3 on him? And I remember saying, why would I give my dog something that I wouldn't eat? So I ended up paying $12 plus for a chicken that I gave to him. And probably he ate, like, what, three or four days, and then he didn't like it. (laughs) Once Luna had managed to finish all the other doggies' puppuccinos, I decided it was best to wish Milo a happy birthday one last time 
and head home. Along the way, I was thinking, these conversations reminded me of some of the suggested content that had popped up on social media earlier that week. It was about these doggy chefs who create fancy dishes for their pets. I think the favorite has to be ramen. That's Daniel Thomas, a former chef and personal trainer who now runs his own raw dog food business. He posts on social media as Chefs and Dogs. Daniel has over 2.5 million followers on TikTok. He's based in Australia, and he's posted about making Wagyu beef burritos, sushi, cupcakes, kangaroo heart-topped pies, and even a beef wellington for his dogs. Gordon Ramsay has even responded to his recipes on TikTok. Yep. Yeah, because I've eaten so many dogs' dinners. Pineapple. No, stop it. What, peeling it? No, come on. Pineapple ring for a dog? Puree pumpkin? Stop it. Seriously? Really? Daniel's approach to these recipes rely on the lessons of high-end restaurants who procure the best quality produce and keep them as fresh as possible. His philosophy is, the better the ingredients, the less you need to add to a dish. The thought of me getting these fresh ingredients and cooking them and blending them down and heating them into a kibble, you know, you're destroying all the fresh moisture, nutrients these foods have. When speaking to the other dog owners, most had made a decision to cook for their dogs for a very similar reason. They wanted to feed their doggies fresh, unprocessed foods. I was curious to know more about why and how Daniel had gone about that switch. How this all started was our dog Joey got diagnosed with uh, autoimmune disease called the lupus. Daniel visited a vet who put Joey on prescription kibble, steroids, and creams to help control the lupus. But what they found out was that over the long term, these treatments were just masking the illness rather than curing it. We had to look around, talk to a lot of people, search the internet for hours and hours, um, nights and nights to, you know, try to get an answer because, you know, this was our kids. Uh, We were one of the very best. And we came across a few things saying, you know, maybe fresh food could be an option, but you'd also read uh, some things on the internet saying, you know, you're going to kill your dog if you feed fresh food and kibble biscuits are a better option, so don't do this. Eventually, with the help of a nutritionist, Daniel settled upon slightly cooked foods. And he says that has made all the difference for Joey. A simple search online and you're bound to find many similar anecdotes. Freshly cooked means no preservatives or fillers. It's supposed to be easier to digest. But these claims don't stop at nutrition. Daniel reports that that switch has led to more energy, shinier coats, and even better poop. We've noticed with our dog switching, you feed them healthy foods, fresh foods, their stools are a lot smaller, they don't smell, they don't smell toxic, they shouldn't smell toxic. And the main thing is they're a lot smaller because they are processing the food that they're eating correctly. Poop is a very important part of the life of us pet parents. I'd be lying if I said it wasn't the same for Luna. We've spent more nights than I'd care to admit worrying about her poop. When we first adopted Looney, we'd even scrutinize the consistency. And even today, by chance, she doesn't happen to poop on routine. Her night walks become these lengthy escapades during which I chant, Do your potty, Looney. Come on, do your potty. But potty talk aside, the part that hit the strongest chord for me from Daniel was this. 
Would you like to have a processed diet for your dog or would you like a fresh diet? And how do you personally feel when eating processed foods? It was straight out of the chorus of the numerous dog ads I'd encountered. Fear was that first emotion that sent me on this quest to wonder if I should cook for Luna. And now guilt had decided to join along. Have I been feeding Looney something that wasn't good for her health? Why did we even choose to give her kibble in the first place? We have an 18-pound bag of kibble that takes up some prominent real estate in our single New York City closet. I was just about ready to toss it out. If you continue down this rabbit hole of research, there are plenty of online authority figures you can find. There's the Pet Food Institute, a nonprofit which represents US-based pet food makers. Or you'll find someone like Rodney Habib, author and self-proclaimed pet influencer. First and foremost, I'm a pet parent, and which is hugely important to me. That's uh, probably my greatest achievement that I strive by. Um, I'm also a citizen scientist. I just have a massive fascination with not only science, but science pertaining to dog longevity. He calls my attention first to some of the principles of human nutrition. Most of us would agree that we should avoid ultra-processed food as much as possible. But unfortunately, the status quo for most pet owners, like me, is to start with kibble. And he frowns upon it. So when it comes to cooking for Luna, Rodney's position was very clear. You 100% should cook for your dog Luna, you should cook for your girlfriend, and you should cook for yourself, and you should cook for your friends. But if kibble is deemed so unhealthy, then why is kibble usually the starting place for any pet parent? In Rodney's research, he points to the birth of the pet food industry in the 1800s. I tried to search for a pet food historian to help me dissect that history. Turns out there's not many out there who are willing to wade through the waters of student loan debt for a higher education in this field. So along with Rodney and other resources, I tried to piece together that story, doing my best to account for any bias. The story is not a foreign story to anybody that's done research of the famous James Spratt who was a, a lightning rod salesman from America who had traveled to the United Kingdom. And he had seen, apparently, sailors who had these hardtacks. Hardtacks are these biscuits that soldiers would eat on long journeys. The story goes, these hardtacks were so hard that soldiers actually had to use the butt of their rifles to break it into pieces or even dip them in coffee to make them palatable. Spratt watched as these sailors would return to shore at the docks, where most of the moldy biscuits would be discarded, and dogs would scavenge them for a meal. James Spratt came up with the idea of, aha, if these dogs are eating this, maybe I can make a dog biscuit, sell it to people, rather than having dog to eat the moldy ones, and make them better. And born of that day was pet food. Centuries before, Dogs were typically fed table scraps or human food leftovers. Our trash was their scavenged meal. That relationship is as old as our earliest interactions with dogs, as they turn from hunting partners to companions to man's best friend. But this idea of dog food as table scraps would work contrary to Spratt's vision for creating the first doggy biscuit. 
Focused on the upper class, his company was the first to erect a billboard in London. And I think his timing was remarkable because as pets started becoming friends or companions, owners wanted to give them something better. Spratt eventually made his way back into America, where in the 1950s General Mills bought out his business. But by then, there were countless other dog biscuits in the market and the emergence of what one might call Big Pet. One of my first purchases for Luna was a large box of milk bone biscuits. Those have been around since the early 1900s. Milk bone does for you. Crunch, 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 crunch. What soft food can do. Crunch, 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 crunch. And each crunchy bite. Milk bone is owned by Nabisco, the cookie and snacks manufacturer that actually sponsored one of Walt Disney's early short films. It was shown at the 1939 World's Fair and is called Mickey's Surprise Party. Mickey and Pluto come over to Minnie's house, where she's been preparing a surprise feast of cookies. Pluto, also romancing Minnie's dog Fifi, brings with him a bone. The bone is quickly shot down by Fifi. As cookies start to burn in the oven, Mickey comes to the rescue with a table of Nabisco products. Oh, Mickey, Nabisco! And off to the side, Pluto has his own gift, a big box of milk bones which gets him a lovely smooch of his own. The idea of Pluto giving Fifi a bone is a great example of something that slowly became a feature of dog food marketing. It mimics a lot of human food trends. Food is a gift for dogs just as much as it is for humans. The World's Fair was also a time and place where great innovations in the food space were displayed. It was a time where science and convenience became staples of American human cuisine. The same was happening with dog food. In an article published by the Pet Food Institute on the history of dog food, another big player in the 1920s was kennel ration. My dog's bigger than your dog. My dog's faster than yours. My dog's shinier cause he gets kennel ration. My dog's better than yours. Their canned food for dogs was predominantly packed with horse meat. Another article on dog food history goes on to say that by 1941, canned food was so successful, horses were actually bred just for dog food at the count of 50,000 a year. Kennel ration rose to prominence, running ads during shows like Bewitched. There was even the Kennel Land Pet Motel, which popped up at Disneyland in the late 1950s. Then during World War II, the metal of canned food needed to be repurposed for wartime efforts. Rodney says that's when an entirely new breed of human food-based companies came into the dog food scene. The cereal industry then got involved and took over new processing techniques. So Quaker got into the mix. Eventually Nestle got into the mix. Mars, the chocolate bar manufacturers, Today, Colgate, Palmolive, some of these very, very big, large brands started to get involved from, from the influence of the cereal industry who said, we have an idea. We can start making dog food with our machinery. It's quite strange to think about how some of the largest companies that make foods, snacks, or other products for our consumption are the very same ones who make it for dogs. But more, it was a bit uncomfortable to learn about these new methods. The machines that puffed cereal or manipulated corn into flakes soon were set towards making dog food. 
This is called extrusion. It's a manufacturing process where powdered ingredients are packed into a machine and heated to produce those perfectly shaped brown bits of kibble. Rodney tells me that the application of heat leads to a loss of nutrition, which then gets added back in the form of additives. And then they need to make this kibble appetizing for the doggies through scents. Keep in mind, pet food manufacturers work with the American Chemical Society. The American Chemical Society's job is to concoct chemicals that will smell like fresh deer, fresh mice, uh, some sort of roadkill or something that smells glorious to your animal. And they spray these foods with these chemicals, these flavor enhancers, these palatants, as you may, to convince the dog to eat it. So for Rodney, alternatives like raw, frozen, or freshly cooked rank higher because there is less overall processing or additives. As our conversation concluded, I recalled both that fear and guilt regarding Luna's diet. And now, disgust came into the picture. Disgust around what went into dog food over the years. Disgust around the production process. Disgust around the marketing of dog food, and even disgust that a few large companies all held the sway over what I choose to feed Looney. I was so disgusted that after speaking with Rodney, I remember immediately rummaging through my fridge to find what I could use to cook a meal for her. I grabbed some rice, chopped cucumbers, and baked some tilapia. Luna sat there in the kitchen, watching me the entire time with her little wide eyes, almost as if she knew this concoction was going to be for her. Luna devoured the entire dish at once. Not too much of a surprise because she does eat everything regardless, but then after eating, there was this strange moment where she hopped onto the couch and fell asleep while cuddling my foot. Was this her way of saying, thank you, daddy? Or is this purely anecdotal and probably my mind projecting? The next morning, in a very rare instance, Luna didn't jump right at her breakfast when I scooped her usual kibble into the bowl. She gave me a look and pout, as if to say, what's this nonsense? I thought to myself, has something changed? Whether her belly was still full or she was expecting something more delicious, I wasn't quite sure. I was sure, though, that cooking for Luna looked promising. After the break, Farood continues his search for the best food for Luna. Eating great food is one thing. The prep and cleanup afterwards is, well, something else. That's where Kohler comes in. When prepping for recipes, you can tell the voice-controlled faucets to dispense measured amounts of water. Kohler's faucets also feature a sweep spray to quickly get any gunk off of your dishes. Even if your hands are messy, you can wave on and off the touchless faucets. That way, you can clean with ease. Visit Kohler.com to learn more. Cooking during the holidays can be stressful. Lots of family, lots of dishes to make. So there's nothing worse than using bad kitchen tools to get the job done. Make it simple this year with OXO. Their cutting and carving board provides the perfect stability when you're carving into that roast because of the non-slip feet that keeps the board in place. You can also avoid slippage with OXO's easy-to-grip mixing bowls. Go ahead, let those younger chefs mash and stir the potatoes to perfection. 
and serve up the feast with OXO's steel-serving tongs. Elegant, ergonomic, and best of all, dishwasher safe. Proof listeners can get 15% off their holiday must-haves when you use the code ATK15 at OXO.com. That's ATK15 at OXO.com. And now, back to our story. It's safe to say, at this stage, I was already sold on the idea of cooking for Luna. That week, we even had a checkup scheduled with our vet, where I was planning to shift away from kibble to at-home cooking. But I was surprised by my vet's response. It was actually a very short-lived conversation. She turned to me to say that kibble was actually still the best option and something she felt most comfortable recommending to all her patients because the science was still out on the benefits of fresh or cooked food. I was shocked. I also wanted to disagree, the same way some of the other pet owners at the park had. When I finally seemed to find an answer, my vet was suggesting something else. Maybe she didn't know about all this latest research. Or was there something more to the picture? These details just weren't adding up. I searched for a lifeline and reached out to Dr. Laura Gaylord, a board-certified veterinary nutritionist. She tells me that the interest in nutritional studies has been a more recent phenomenon, something that wasn't even traditionally covered in many vet programs. The rise correlates to an increase of human hunger for healthier options. As pets become our kids, we owners have become more interested in understanding what they should eat and why. So yes, It was quite possible my vet was not caught up on all the latest options. But there was another reason that vets might avoid discussions around nutrition, according to Dr. Gaylord. Because there is such a polarizing opinions about nutrition out there, um, there's a lot of misinformation about nutrition out there too. And I think pet owners kind of get really taken in and one path versus another, and it might not align with their veterinarian's viewpoint. And so unfortunately, the reality is I think some veterinarians do avoid that discussion because it can be, you know, quite a debate rather than a discussion sometimes. Now pet food is being politicized. <sighs> While fear, guilt, and disgust bubbled up inside me again, I decided I needed to shed that bias for just a moment and try to glean a proper nutritionist's perspective. For starters, Dr. Gaylord says all the options seem to be viable for our doggies. So you have your kibble, your canned food, you have your raw diets, you have now fresh diets, you have freeze-dried, you have air-dried, you have baked. We have all that stuff going on. Um, And they can all be complete foods. They can all be complete and balanced foods. After so many different discussions and explorations, as long as I fed Luna something considered complete and balanced, that would be enough. Because I really wanted to make sure this approach was correct, I sought out a second opinion. I spoke to nutritionist Dr. Jennifer Larson to vet if the complete and balanced approach was the right one. She agreed, adding that we must remind ourselves that dogs are not humans. They have different lifespans, habits, and genetics. We humans need to feed them accordingly. Their lifespans are so much shorter than ours. And 
I sort of think of it as every day counts more <laughs> when you have a shorter lifespan. And, and that's particularly true during, during growth and reproduction. So more demanding life stages where there might be a bigger gap between what you need and what you're getting is going to have more of an impact. So how does one ensure their meal is complete and balanced for a dog? Isn't it as easy as finding a recipe which has all the major food groups and putting it all together? I find recipes for myself all the time online. The cucumber rice and tilapia meal was quite easy, and Luna seemed to love it. There has been a few studies where they've pulled recipes off the internet and they've run them through a, a nutrition software formulation to see how they work out, and every single one of them had a nutritional deficiency of some kind. Turns out these online recipes are either too vague, don't tailor to a dog's specific needs, or the ingredients and preparation methods are too vague. If a client really wanted to cook, Dr. Gaylord recommends they work with a professional. So some combination of homemade and commercial, honestly, I feel like is the best of both worlds. Dr. Larson, on the other hand, says there's value in sticking to the experts by a company's reputation and those that have been around to devote time and research into designing nutritionally sound pet food. Big pet is big pet for a reason, according to Dr. Larson. There are millions of details that are required to get right in order to manufacture and sell a pet food that's appropriate and safe. And I think that one thing that is really not transparent to your average consumer is the very high level of food science and technology and the expertise of the people that actually make the food happen. And a lot of people, I think, don't even understand the degree of complexity and sophistication that goes into processing their own food. I was thinking to myself, okay, maybe if I can't cook an online recipe for Luna, I could still subscribe to one of those customized dog meal services. I'd seen countless ads for them on Instagram. But Dr. Larson was skeptical about this option. I'm not convinced at all that homemade food or homemade-style commercial foods are best. We have nothing to base that claim on. She brings up the idea that we humans might hate the idea of complete and balanced diets for ourselves, that we don't have quote-unquote human chow or a kibble equivalent for humans. But when it really matters... We actually do. Take baby formula. We have MREs, or meals ready to eat, for when we send people to space or war zones. These might seem like extreme cases, but the idea of complete and balanced does enter the world of human nutrition. And the word processed means different things for humans and dogs. When we think of processed human foods, we might think of chips or snacks, which have all these ingredients like salt, oil, and sugars. Kibble or canned diets might be processed in the manufacturing sense, but they avoid those unhealthy additions we otherwise prescribe to the word processed. Competing nutritional narratives wasn't Dr. Larson's only point of contention with the rise of alternative food options. The decision also brings us to a murky intersection between class and ethics. I think that it's a very privileged place to be, to be able to cook for your dog and to buy those kinds of ingredients that are in direct competition with human food. 
And that is not new to both pet nutrition and human nutrition. There is a lot of privilege and elitism in food, and people like to give moral value to food that just isn't there. I really wasn't expecting to encounter this when I first approached the idea of cooking for Luna. No owner wants to give their pet any less than the best. But at what point are we pet parents willing to push the competition for food up against the affordability of high-quality food for all humans? Our U.S.-based cats and dogs are responsible for almost a quarter of the meat consumed from livestock. Together, U.S. pets rival the amount of food consumed by France. So it had me thinking, if all other doggy daddies and parents like me decided to make the switch to cooking, how would that impact the rest of the supply chain, or impact the other humans around me, or impact the environment with the extra strain on resources? Luna doesn't feel squeamish when it comes to eating those nasty bits of animal carcasses that we humans don't like to eat. Using those parts for pet food might actually be the most ethical and environmentally friendly way to approach pet food, especially when the nutritional benefits are still debatable. Despite learning about some of these broader impacts, I still had that nagging feeling inside of me that wanted to cook for Luna. Owners are very confused about what to buy, and 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 fear and guilt are and disgust are all very powerful emotions that drive consumer choices more than they should be. Fear, guilt, and disgust. That sounds familiar. The same way we saw the marketing of dog food that began in the 1800s to be aggressive, taking advantage of our emotions as dogs as companions. We're seeing the same exact phenomenon today. As we've seen with my relationship with Looney, she's a kid, my mother's granddaughter. And marketing companies know what we millennials value. Like this ad from Halo Elevate Dog Food. Maybe being a human parent is overrated. So if you're gonna have a kid, make it a furry one and feed them. Debbie Phillips Donaldson, editor in chief of the resource pet food industry, says this idea of pet humanization is no longer really just a trend. The humanization of pet food, or the mimicking of human food trends, has now become the foundation of the pet food industry. There are so many places that pet owners can get information today, right? And obviously pet food companies are a big part of that. But I would say that really it's the consumers themselves that influence what pet food companies do. Companies are creating options driven by what we humans think are good for our diets. So when we consumers project our taste onto our pets' diets, coupled with this fact that companies are taking cue for their products by us, the consumers, we have this very strange, chaotic loop of humanized pet food, which really has no nutritional bearing. Dr. Larson tells me that many times, brands made by the same company will market to different individuals for that very reason. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't consciously recognize. And so if a diet is not appealing to you as a consumer, all that means is it's not marketed to you. It doesn't mean that it's poor quality or bad for your pet or anything. Like All it means is it's not marketed to you most of the time. We millennials also love the idea of some sort of authority figure helping to design the meal. So we love that veterinary-approved stamp. 
But Dr. Larson later tells me, Even using the term veterinary approved, that is not allowed as far as the authorities go. Veterinarians don't have any approval authority for pet food, but I still see that all the time. Another thing we seem to care about, as it has come up plenty so far, is good poop. Many brands that sing by switching to their meals, our doggy's stool will also become smaller. It'll become less odorous. Dr. Gaylord counters by asking if it is considered good poo for the dog or good poo for the owner. Because between Luna and I, we might be prioritizing different things. There's lots of work right now of looking at the microbiome, um, the bacterial balance within the GI tract. Um, we're still defining what's normal for a dog, and we're finding just like in people that what type of diet they consume could influence the microbiome. So that doesn't mean one is good or one is bad. It just means they're different based on what they eat. Debbie concludes that influencers might all be splendid people. Companies might have the best slogans or intent. But at the end of the day, as frustrating as it might be, everyone has an angle. I guess this is all to say, maybe I need to stop thinking of Luna as my daughter. Because as much as I love her, she is not a human. She's a dog. And thinking of her as a kid only allows these companies to market products to me, the human, rather than what might actually be good for her belly. So, where do I go from here? Honestly, I'm not sure. In some ways, I'm just as confused as when I began researching this story. It's like I'm starting all over again. I can say that it turns out, cooking might not make a big difference to Luna's diet when done right. And when done wrong, there can be some pretty big consequences. I think it is also safe to say that there's something still intangible about giving Luna or any dog cooked food. Is it possible that there's more to food for dogs than just nutrition? Do dogs think about what's in their bowl or where their food comes from? Daniel the dog chef raises quails in his backyard and told me this story. One of our dogs, Kaylin, who's a border collie, about five years old, is best friends with these quail. He absolutely loves hanging out with them and, you know, we obviously feed quail to our dogs on rotation occasionally and the border collie Kaylin, who is best friends with our quail, refuses to eat any quail. Rodney, our pet influencer, has also experienced similar emotions when cooking for his furry friend. When you are with your dog and you are making food for your dog, the emotions that you're putting out, that gratifying feeling of knowing that you're going to nourish your animal, I mean, there's no words for that. Your dog can smell that. Your dog can pick up on that. And when I went to the park and asked the dog owners whether they thought cooked food made a difference, they all said, Definitely, definitely. She gets far more excited when she realizes she's eating people food, especially. She likes more the food I cook than the other one. I give her the other one. If I'm on a rush, I'll give her that. And sometimes I come back home, it's still there. She won't it like she won't eat it two days in a row. Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. They love it. They devour it. They love it. Um, and I'm happy just watching the meat. But they love the critical. Yes. 
If it isn't purely just about nutrition, then what is it about? I just don't know. From fine dining experiences to endless cooking shows, food is something in our human world that has transcended nutrition. And I can't help but think there might be something else there for dogs as well. Is this once more my human emotions projecting? Most probably. And I know I shouldn't be relying on them. But what if ultimately cooking and feeding Luna is simply another way of bonding with her? I guess I do plan on cooking for Luna, but only once in a while, on special occasions, or when we have leftovers that I know she'd enjoy. A bit of kibble for reliability, and then maybe some toppings from our meals cooked safely for her to also enjoy. Only sometimes though, because food isn't the only way to get to her happiness. So is playing with her toys that come from the monthly subscription box, or taking her for lengthy walks to get out her nighttime poops, or even forcing myself to socialize so that Luna can have friends. I think that just about wraps up this thorough investigation into dog food I never thought I'd write about. But also, Luna's been nibbling at my feet for the past five minutes, and I think her next mealtime has arrived. Thanks to Varud Gupta for bringing us this story. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer Caitlin Kelleher. I'm Terrence Johnson, and I'm the associate producer. I'm Alex Curran Cartarelli, and I'm also an associate producer. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Audio services are provided by Ultraviolet Audio with sound design supervision by Matt Boynton, scoring, mixing, and sound design by Anya Gzeshik, and additional engineering by David Bowman, Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composer theme music, additional music by Cal Forster and Jordan Pearson. Ken Margolis is our director of post-production and our director of production is Diane Knox fact-checking and additional research by Angela Yang special thanks to everyone who spoke to Varud for this story but most of all to Luna you're a good girl yes you are Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen and David Nussbaum is America's Test Kitchen's CEO Thanks to our sponsors, Kohler, Oxo, Sengoku, The Mango Board, and Breville. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.